Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. We need there in the fourth chapter beginning at the 32nd verse. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. I hope that it's a happy sound when we have heard raindrops falling on the roof of the church. Nice to be here, isn't it, in God's house on this Sunday in June. You've heard me say that today is the first Sunday after Trinity, and you may wonder what's that all about. Well, if you know, we have a church year, and we divide it into its halves, and we talk about the first half of the church year as being the festival half. You recall the church year begins with the first Sunday in Advent, and it runs to Trinity Sunday, and in that half of the church year, we celebrate the great festivals like Christmas and Epiphany and Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter and Ascension. And then we had Pentecost, and last Sunday, you recall, we celebrated Trinity Sunday. Now we are in the last half, which is the non-festival half, so we simply number the Sundays after Trinity. Today is the first, and if you look at your calendar, you find that there are 24 Sundays in all, and then we come to the Advent season, begin another church year. This is the time when, again, we speak about the Christian life, and we talk about the practical things. Now, the Word of God that I just read you, I like that text very much because it gives you and me a picture of the first Christian church, the one at Jerusalem, the one that was established on the day of Pentecost. It was made up entirely of Jews, and it was the mother church. And besides giving us a picture of it, it tells us what the apostles preached about. And that's interesting, isn't it, for us to say, what did they preach about in the first century Christian church? What was the theme? What was the heart? What was the very core of all the preaching? What was the message? And we are told here that with great power the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This was the theme of preaching in the first Christian church in Jerusalem established on the day of Pentecost. They preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the theme of all preaching was this. Christ who died on the cross arose from the dead. Christ who died came back from the grave. He is the living Christ. This was the theme. 
And this is what is so interesting. We may say, well, then in the word of God, the Christians of the first century, they're calling to you and me, the Christians of the 20th century, and they are saying this, let this be your message in the 20th century. Even it was our message in the first century, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that he who died, he arose again. And you and I may say this morning, now, wait a minute, we are of the 20th century, and they were of the first century, and you say that they are calling to us that the theme of our preaching today, the message, the very heart and soul of what is being proclaimed, that our proclamation should be no less than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And we may say to ourselves, but is that message, is that a contemporary message for our day? Is that timely? And we hear so much about this word relevant. Does it fit for our day? And we may say, look at our time. For such a day as this, do you mean to say that the early Christians would say, this ought to be the theme of your preaching. This ought to be the heart and soul of everything, that it centers in the Christ who died and the Christ who rose again. And we may say, why, uh, this thing is not contemporary. This thing is not relevant. Uh, this is a message for another age, but not for our age. Ours is the age of the nuclear bomb. Ours is the age of outer space. This is the 20th century. And you say the Christians of the first century call to us from, again, their century, let this be the message. And we say, is it contemporary? Is this thing pertinent? Is this thing relevant? Does this thing fit in? On the basis of the word of God, the Christians of the first century would assure you and me this morning that this message of the Christ who died, who rose again, that it's relevant, it's for this age, it's just as contemporary as is today, it's just as contemporary as is tomorrow, it's just as timely as is this outer space age, and all because they would assure us on the basis of the word of God uh, that, again, this message of the risen Christ who died, that this is the message that is the panacea for all of the ills and all the needs in our day, that it's the cure-all. It is the remedy for the things that trouble us in the 20th century, even as it is the remedy that was in the first century. And you may say, preacher, that's hard to believe. You mean to say that the needs of our 20th century, they are met when the church says, this is the theme of preaching. It shall be with great power to declare the resurrection of the Lord from the dead. And may I remind you in the first place that the early Christians would assure you and me this, that when this is the message, that the Christ who died rose again, that this message, when individuals believe it, it causes them to be filled and to be partakers of great grace. May I ask you, when we look to the word of God and Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts, we say, what did this message do in the early church? On the day of Pentecost, you recall, when the Holy Spirit came, then Peter got up and he preached a sermon. And as you read that sermon in the book of Acts, you and I know that it's centered in Jesus Christ who died, who was crucified and who arose again. And what was the result of the preaching of that word of God about Christ who rose from the dead? We are told that 3,000 souls came into the church, in the mother church. It grew by 3,000, think of it, in one day. And then Luke gives us this second picture, and by this time there were 5,000 men in the church, not counting women and children. The church was growing. Why? Because the church said this is the heart and this is the soul of its message that we preach Christ crucified who arose again assuring us that in him there is life and salvation for all mankind. And the church grew. They were filled with great grace. 
We say to ourselves as we look at the church through the centuries, from the first down here to the 20th, whenever the church said, this is the proclamation, this is the message, we shall preach Christ who died and who arose again, the living Christ. Look at the Christian church today. It has grown through the centuries. We say, what about its size? It's the largest church in all the world. It has more adherence than the next two human-made religions, Muslimism and Hinduism. It is tremendous and it is great. Why? Because whenever the great preaching is this, that it's done with great power, the Christ that died for the sins of the world and who arose again, here is life and salvation. Then the church grows and men become partakers of great grace and therefore this message is timely, friends. It is as contemporary as the outer space age in which you and I are living because, again, it gives to every man that believes it the greatest blessing that God's grace can bestow eternal life. You say to me this morning, this is the 20th century, what's our greatest need? That isn't hard. Your greatest need in mine is to be saved. Man has sinned. Man has turned his back on God. When you and I look at the world today, we say, what's wrong? It's this. We are estranged from God. We are lost and damned because of our sins. And therefore, whether you and I lived in the first century or the 15th or whether we live here in the 20th century, the great need of the world today is to be saved, to be rescued from hell and the eternal punishment of sin. And this great grace comes when there is preached the heart and soul of this gospel message. The Christ who died on the cross is the Christ that brings eternal life. This is the need. I insist that again, when we say, what did the church preach about? It preached about the resurrection of Christ. That is as contemporary as today. It's as contemporary as tomorrow. It is as contemporary as this atomic age, as this again, this great outer space age. It's the message for today because man's fundamental and greatest of all needs is to be saved. And therefore we ought to say to ourselves when we say, well, if the Christians of the first century call to us, that we ought to see to it that our message is this, the resurrection of Christ. We ought to stop for a moment and say, well, is this the message of the church? Is this the message that we're hearing here at Emmanuel Congregation? Some of us were permitted to get on to Cap University not long ago when Dr. Fent, who has been the president of the seminary, retired. And there was a service for him. And again, there was a dinner. When he got up, he said this in a few of his remarks. He said, we do have in the seminary men who are interested only in man and not in God. In other words, what was he saying? He was saying that we have in the seminary, we have students and we have faculty men who are interested only in man's welfare now, not in God's relationship to man. And I wonder if we would stop to realize that if we're only interested in man, his welfare, Jesus talked about that one day. Supposing the church would say, we're not interested in God and in Christ and in salvation for mankind. This is simply something that is archaic. This is old fogey. We're interested in man today and in man's welfare. Jesus, you know, one day said, what shall it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul. Christ took a scale one day, you know, and he put on one side of that scale the whole world, everything, the finest things that you could possibly have, all of the intelligence and all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the happiness on one side and put a soul on the other. But he said, what benefit is it if a man has everything but he loses his soul. Jesus gave the answer to that. We could give man every advantage as far as this earthly life is concerned. The church could shift from the message that it ought to be having and it could bring man closest to heaven on earth that every man then at the day of death would stand in face of God and without Jesus Christ he would be damned. Oh, again, are we interested only in man or is the church today interested in God? Sad, isn't it? What about Emmanuel? 
What is the message of preaching here? Is it the risen Jesus Christ, or is it again man's earthly, temporary welfare? To be lost is the greatest tragedy that could ever happen. There is nothing that will compensate for it. And that's why, again, we ought to say to ourselves when we look at the early century, what, what did they preach about? What did the disciples talk about? When they got together and they had church, what did, again, what did the message contain? We are told here that with great power, the apostles, what did they do? They gave testimony and they bore witness to the resurrection of Christ. And why? And the early century Christians, they called you and me and say, let this be the very hub, the very center of your preaching, that it be the Christ who died on the cross arose. Why? because it would assure us that this is the panacea, this is the cure-all, this is the remedy for every need, even in our enlightened 20th century. Oh, this message is always contemporary. It is as timely as, again, the atomic age and outer space age in which you and I live, because the early Christians would assure us that when this message is preached, then those who believe it, they come to this, they come to be of one mind and of one soul. Dr. Luke, in describing that early church, he said, and those, again, who were the faithful, he said they were of one heart and of one soul. Uh, that church, in that congregation, there was as though there was just one heart that was beating and one soul. There was a unity. And you and I say, what kind of a unity existed in that church? We just we confessed our faith, didn't we, in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I wonder how many of us realize just what that creed really means. We talk about the Apostles' Creed. I don't get the idea the Apostles wrote it. They didn't write it. This thing grew. When Jesus Christ, who died and who arose again, was being preached, and those on the outside saw Christians who had hope and joy within them, they said, what do you Christians believe? You're a new sect. What is it that you hold so dear? And then there had to be a statement from the Christians of the first century as to what they believed. The Apostles' Creed was written by no man. This thing grew. But by the end of the first century, you had a statement of the first century church. This is what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, as we said, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Oh, they said, here, this Jesus was God's Son. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered and died. He arose again. He's gone back to heaven, and he's coming back. And there is life and salvation. This creed at the end of the first century was a statement. And we say, what's the heritage of the first century? Well, when we repeat our confessional statement in the Apostles' Creed, we ought to say, this is the heritage. You don't find it in the Bible. It's a statement that is corroborated in Scripture. But here was a statement, a heritage in the first century saying, this is what we believe. There was a unity and there was a oneness. And when again there is this unity and oneness and the church said, this is our message. The message is the crucified Christ and the risen Lord. Then there comes a unity as regards his deity and as regards his virgin birth, the meaning of Calvary, the great meaning of his resurrection and of his ascension to heaven, and that he's coming back again. And let me tell you, this meets a need. You say, this is a need that is met in our day in this 20th century. What is a great need that we need? Isn't it this, the church, giving a united heart and soul conviction and testimony to the world? That the greatest blessing that God gives is eternal life and that it compensates for the worst that ever comes. Look, let's get down to brass tacks. The Word of God says you and I must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Let's face it, you and I are going to have problems as long as we live. There's going to be death in your home and there's going to come incurable illnesses and you and I are going to have adversities and we're going to have troubles. I don't care what happens. But what, there's a message that is needed and that comes in every century. 
Your boy may be killed in Vietnam. Your boy may be missing. You may miss your loved one and then death can come and tragedy and accidents. But you need some place where you can go and you can say, where is the need when everything's gone wrong? And it's not going to be righted in this world. We need some place, an oasis in the desert to come and to say, you're not home yet, son. The Christ who arose from the dead, he gives you eternal life. And that eternal life with him in heaven, with your loved ones, that eternity and the joy and the bliss where there will be no sorrow, no crying, no more tears, it will more than compensate for the worst adversity that will ever come. This is a message for our age because it's pretty dark. You and I don't know what we're heading for. But thank God if the church can stand and say, but here is the risen Christ. When you are saved in him, let come what may, this is a need. And let me tell you, this is the panacea. We ought to say to ourselves, then how about the church? Are we preaching this risen Christ who died, who gives eternal life, this blessing that he longed for and endured the cross that he might go back home, that it will make up for the worst? By that I mean, I don't care what comes in your life and mine, it will more than compensate for it. We ought to say to ourselves, how about it? Is the church being faithful? Is the church preaching this living Christ? And do we have one mind? And do we have one soul? It was our privilege down at the Ohio District Convention to hear our newly elected president, Dr. Kent Knutson, get up and he said it's rather sad that in the church today we find a division, we find trouble as regard the authority of scriptures. Then he said he likes to look at the etymology of a word and he likes to look at the word authority and he finds that it comes from the Greek dynamis which means power and he said how sad it is that the church should be troubled on the power of the scriptures. And then he went on to say the Missouri Senate of Lutheran Church meets next month in July in Milwaukee and the very first item on their agenda is this. You see, two years ago, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod declared pulpit and all the fellowship with us in the American Lutheran Church. They have not declared pulpit and all the fellowship with the Lutheran Church in America, the LCA. But the very first thing on their agenda in July in Milwaukee is whether they continue it. They would like to break it. That is some of them. Dr. Knutson mentioned that there should be any question about the power of the Word of God speaking about the Holy Spirit, but that isn't the problem. The problem is not that there is any problem as regard the Holy Spirit working in the Word of God. It goes deeper than that. This word authority has got another meaning. Again, the finality of the words of the Word of God. Is there a finality? Do the words of God come from the Holy Spirit through men or not? Does the Bible mean what it says? This is what's troubling the church. Missouri shouldn't break off with us because they've got them who no longer believe in the infallible, verbally inspired word of God, even as we have and even as the LCA. The big question is the finality of the word. Does the word of God say what it means and does it mean what it says? Did the Holy Spirit do something special? Did he guide the men who wrote it? There are those who say there is no inspiration as regards the words, that men wrote it and come from various sources and that therefore it's filled with mistakes. Did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? There are those who are saying, this is the way men spoke, and this is symbolic, that it means something else. Well, if it means something else, what does it mean? Is the day going to come when it's such a symbolic meaning that it doesn't mean what it says, that even we preachers are going to have to write to the head of the church or to our seminars to say, please tell me what this means, and get the word to me before Saturday night. No, if the mail should be late, it'd be rough on you on Sunday. Won't have anything to preach about. This is what's plaguing the church. When we realize this, 
The only Christ you and I know is the Christ of the Scriptures. And when Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, I believe he meant just that very thing. I believe that the Word of God is something special. I believe that the Holy Spirit guided men, that when they wrote and used their own vocabularies, that they wrote without mistake and they wrote what God wanted them to write. This is not true in the whole church, sad to say. And therefore, again, let's know this, that if the church is going to be of one mind and one heart, if we aren't going to go into divisions again, we ought to say, so what did they preach about in the first century? In the first century, they preached about the living Christ, the Christ who died, who rose. And the only Christ I know is the Christ of the Word of God. If the Word of God is not the final authority that God gave the Word, Scriptures means the words, the writings. The only Christ I know is the Christ of the Scriptures. And if the Scriptures are not authoritative coming from God, then God pity us. What kind of a Christ do we really have? I like this text because it tells you and me what they preached in the first century. In the first century, with great power, the apostles gave witness. They gave testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And you and I may say, well, we live in the 20th century, preacher. Uh, we're in the atomic age. We're in the outer space age. We're in the age you put a man on the moon. You mean to tell me this is vital and this is relevant? This is pertinent? This is germane to the needs of the day? Oh, yes. The early Christians say this is the message that is the panacea for the needs of every century. It's as contemporary as today or tomorrow. It's as contemporary as this age or the age in the next centuries if we live that long, if this world stands that long. The early Christians would remind you and me that when, again, there is preached this Christ who died and who rose again, then those who believe it, they look at their material things as being something that they hold in common, as being not their own. You may say, well, what about it? Men may say, well, you talk about the church today. The church is missing the boat. The church doesn't seem concerned about their fellow man. Well, what did the preaching of the risen Christ do in the first century church? Why, when they realized that they, because Jesus died and rose again, brought them eternal life, there was such a feeling of gratitude. There was such a tremendous joy to think that Christ saved them that this love knew no bounds and they looked at every other man as being a creature of God and that God wanted them saved and that Christ died for them and then they showed it in their deeds of mercy and people say, what was the great need in the early church? It was poverty. There were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. There was a lot of poverty in the church as there's poverty in the world. What did they do? Some misunderstand. They say, well, did every Christian have to give everything that he had to the disciples and that everybody was simply deprived of everything that he had and that the disciples doled it out. No, this was a voluntary thing. When need arose in the church, Christians said, nobody's going to go hungry in this church. Nobody's going to go without the necessities of life. And when they need arose, there were those who had property who voluntarily sold the property and gave the money voluntarily to the disciples and said, here, you take care of the need. We're told of one case, one Joe Barnabas. Maybe that's where we get the expression, he was a good Joe, old Joe Barnabas, who was a Jew, a Levite, from the island of Cyprus. He had a piece of ground, and he sold it and gave the money to the disciples. He said, here, take care of the boy. This is the way they, there was no want. There was a concern. You and I look out in our world today, and you say, what are you, what's the church doing? You say, you mean you're going to get up there preaching, you're going to preach about the risen Christ. You say that's vital, that's contemporary. You say that that's pertinent, that this is relevant. Why, of course. Look at the Christian church that every decent thing that we have in the world came out of the church. I challenge every hear of a hospital before Christ came into the room. Where did hospitals come from? When Christians saw need and mercy, 
Out of, again, a great sense of gratitude for being saved, Christians looked out on their fellow men. God loves them and God wants them saved. I will be merciful. Where did you get old folks' homes and children's homes? And again, the status of womanhood. And children, especially those that were born retarded. Uh, where, uh, again, do you find the mercy? It came out of the church. Colleges. Where did democracy come from? It came out of the church. Every decent thing that you and I can lay our hand on came out of the church. Why? Because the church preached something vital. It preached the Christ who died and who rose again. And therefore, again, that you Christians, you've got to go out and love. That's what they did in the first century. You talk about the need today, poverty in the world. And with all of the things, the poverty, that brings on war and it brings on bloodshed and man's inhumanity to man. It brings on all the other troubles that we have and racial prejudices. But what let me tell you when Jesus Christ is the risen Lord is preached and people say, because he saved me. Well, therefore, again, I shall not be selfish. What I have belongs also to him. I shall go out and I shall love a man to heaven and I shall show it by my deeds to make it easier for him to believe. This is the message and it's just as contemporary as today. It's just as contemporary as tomorrow. We ought to stop and say to ourselves then, what about the church? What is the heart and soul of the message? What, again, what's the church talking about? Are we so antique, are we so archaic that we have lost ourselves? Well, in the early church, the Christians said this was the theme. This was the thing we talked about. This was the thing we bore witness to, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world, who arose, who lives, who's coming back. This was the theme of it. We ought to say to ourselves then, oh, what a privilege you and I have of going out and loving men into the kingdom of God to show that we appreciate what Christ has done. Oh, the church is relevant when you preach Jesus Christ, you and I look at every man and we say whether we like him or whether we don't, he's a child of God. And when he's in need, you and I will need it. This is, this is the need of the day. This day happens to be a rather unique occasion in my life, if you will pardon me for saying to it. It was just 40 years ago today, on the second Sunday in June, that I was ordained into the Christian ministry. Forty years ago, on the second Sunday in June, took place in the home congregation, Zion Lutheran Church in South Chicago, Illinois. I didn't grow up in that church. My folks moved away from Chicago when I was about five years of age. But my two grandfathers were charter members of South Chicago, Zion. My father and mother were both confirmed there, and they were married there. And when it came for my ordination, uh, they wanted me to go back to Chicago for ordination. Dr. Fent, who just retired from the seminary, ordained me and preached the sermon 40 years ago today. I look back and I, I thank God 40 years in the ministry. God's been good. I think back and I think in 40 years I've never missed a Sunday because of illness. But another thing troubles and that's this, that by the end of this year I am eligible for retirement. The question comes up in my mind, what shall I do? What is God's will? I want to be honest with you, I prayed about this thing and I have wrestled with this thing. You see, there's only three ways to get out of the ministry. One is to walk out, and the other one is to be carried out, and the third one is to be thrown out. I am asking God, shall I walk out? Or shall I wait till they carry me out in death? Or should I perhaps overstay my 
stay to the point that they would like to throw me out. I don't know. I know this, that it, it's something that is heavy on my heart. Because I say to myself, God hasn't said to me what to do of asking. I say, what will happen to the manual if I leave? I don't know. It bothers me. What about our radio audience? I know, and perhaps you do, that being on the air since 1943, over 28 years, I know that I speak to more non-Lutheran Christians on Sunday than I speak to Lutheran Christians. I think you know that. And I remember when we went on the air, when Bob Mason, W. Wren said to me, you'll know in two weeks whether you're going to last or not. And God has blessed it for over 28 years. It, it bothers. I wonder, what about the radio? And then, of course, the other thing is, oh, where do I go if I walk out before you carry me out? I'm not too worried about you throwing me out, at least not today. But where do you go? You see, in my ministry, I have spent it at the time when part of the pastor's salary was included in the parsonage, and so I don't have a home. I don't have any place to go to. Where do you go? Oh, I, I'm not complaining, nor am I worried. Don't misunderstand. God, who has taken care of me for 40 years, granted me the health that he has. Oh, there have been Sundays when I've been sicker than you were when you stayed at home, but because I always promised the Lord, if I can talk, I'll be there. There were Sundays you didn't notice it sometime when I sort of held myself up, but I did preach because I could talk. I'm not worried, but again, I'm wondering what is, what is God's will. It's been a joy to see this church grow. It's been a tremendous challenge. Forty years in the gospel ministry. If I had to do it over again, I'd do it again. But I, I just want to say this. First six years and four months as pastor at Grace Lutheran Church at Eaton, Ohio, and I've been here ever since. You've looked up here for a long time. You've seen the same guy up here for a long time. Maybe it's getting tiresome. I, I just want you to know this, that I'm ready to walk out any time you think it would be better for the future of Emmanuel Congregation. I wouldn't stand in this way for the world. God's taken care of me, and I know he will. But I, I want to testify this today, that in the 40 years of my ministry, I have glorified Jesus Christ. I don't brag about it, but that's what I promised him when I was ordained 40 years ago today, that I would exalt him. And I believe that it's contemporary. I still believe that the church has a message. I still believe that preaching the crucified and risen Christ, it's the panacea. It's the cure-all. It's the remedy. Whatever he has in store for me, I don't know. But I promise you that I want to walk the glory road. And it's been a great joy to preach about him because he's worth preaching about. And I would keep on singing on the glory road. Beautiful Savior, King of creation, Son of God and Son of man. Truly I'd love thee. Truly I'd serve thee. Light of my soul, my joy, my crown. That's the only message I know. You have heard it, and I know you have enjoyed it. I thank God for you, because this is the Christ. I find him worth preaching about. He who died, he rose again. That's the Jesus. Oh, he's great. Amen.
the peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.